the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. I'm your co-host, J.P. John Paz, and with me, as always, is the star of the show, former WWE World Tag Team Champion, eight-time Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion, and one of the greatest professional wrestling trainers of all time. He is the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Tom, how are you doing today? I am doing great, John. It's a great day to be alive in Knoxville, Tennessee. I feel like you're on the minds of a lot of wrestlers lately. I mean, we talked about Sheamus and, and obviously Emily with uh, now with uh, WWE. Kofi Kingston lately also really talking up Dr. Tom. What are your thoughts? All these guys coming out of the woodwork, they love Dr. Tom. Well, I think that's kind of cool, actually. I think it's very cool because sometimes, well, let me just speak for myself. When you leave and go away, you're not really sure what people think of you, and it's very nice to hear when uh, – Somebody especially like Seamus, uh, Natty Neidhart, Kofi Kingston, um, anybody, anybody uh, comes out and says something nice about you. So I'll take it. I appreciate it. And um, I, I think it's great. And I, I really do appreciate it. It's good to know. It is pretty great to go on Twitter and see, oh, here's somebody talking about Dr. Tom. Oh, here's you know another glowing report from Kofi about Dr. Tom. Pretty cool. Yeah, it was very cool. It really was. And Kofi was a, a talented guy from day one. Um, he, he was there at the same time that uh, Xavier and Big E were training. So they, they were they were close back then, and obviously it translated and uh, transferred into WWE. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's always nice, like I said, when you go back and, and see some of the guys. We, always, we used to... Well, one of the other trainers and I at FCW used to kid each other. You know, we we didn't really want to go backstage because you don't know what to say when you're not in the mix. Uh, everybody's got their own uh, own deal going on, and you come in, and you say hi, hey, what's going on? Oh, everything's great, good. How's things with you? Yeah, everything's great, good. Okay, see ya. You know, so unless we stay in constant contact, sometimes you just uh, you never know. But but it's been very great for the last couple times and. Uh, it, it's always nice to hear, and I certainly do appreciate all of them, man. I appreciate everybody uh, who, who's made positive comments, and uh, and every time I talk to them, it's it's always good to see them talk to them. So can't complain. Nice. And now this week, going in a little bit different direction, not going to specifically talk about guys who train, but want to talk about Dr. Tom and Dr. Tom entering the World Wrestling Federation, entering the WWF. And it's interesting when you go back and you look and you think of Heavenly Bodies, but you actually made a brief appearance in 1987 at a WWF Paul Bosch retirement show. Do you even remember this show against Mark Lewin? Oh, I do remember it. Yeah, I... uh, Yes, 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 yes. And that's uh that was one of those um times in my career that I wish you could take back to because I I was training with Mark Lewin when I was a teenager, even before I got in the business. And while I knew Mark um and trained with Mark as a as a teenager, started sixteen, uh I wasn't sure how to act around Mark or how to be around Mark because I I didn't want to be misinterpreted as as some kind of uh, kid that just just 
wanted to be a play wrestler because I really wanted to wrestle. I wanted I wanted to be in the in the business, and I was going to show Mark that, uh, my gosh, let's work out, let's get serious. And and Mark was a great guy. Uh, I met his his dad Sid, his wife his wife at that time Taruko, and and would pick him up, go to the gym, and I learned a lot of things from Mark. Uh, that night, in uh, gosh, I think. I think Bruce talked about it on his show, too, a couple times. But that night for Paul Bosch, and let me back up. You have to understand, I I grew up in Houston, and I grew up uh, doing all the odd jobs you could from being a second. I didn't referee in Houston itself, but I refereed in some of the towns outside of Houston for for Pete Burkholtz, Paul's nephew, when, when, when they promoted, like in Galveston or Port Arthur or Beaumont, something like that. I, they, they let me referee occasionally. I'd set up the ring for the uh, spot shows too. And uh, before I started wrestling, I, I became Paul Bosch's assistant sitting at ringside. So, you know, I, I grew up in Houston while Mark Lewin was a huge star uh, at the time I'm breaking in. Well, I, I'd known about Mark Lewin. Mark had been a huge star since he was, you know, a teenager, and he broke in. And uh, a different time, different era. But I had heard rumors about Mark, and uh, some people would run away, but it just intrigued me, you know, the craziness, the insanity. And I thought, well, if this is it, I've got a front row seat for it. And uh, when I went away, uh, my first territory to California, Mark – actually called PSA Airlines at his apartment in Houston, Texas, and made the reservation for me to fly out to Fresno and uh, get all that set up. So come come 1987, I've been wrestling now, gosh, eight years, whatever it was, and I'm in the Alabama Territory. But, uh, you know, I still um, had this reoccurring theme, I guess, uh, I, I just never got close to a lot of people, even Mark, you know, while we were close working out and things like this, it's just, uh, Mark was a special guy. Mark was a different kind of guy. And, uh, everybody in the business knew about Mark Lewin's reputation and what, 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 um, what it was like. So we get to Houston that night and, um, I was unaware of any chaos going on. I was unaware of, uh, gosh, I was unaware of anything, I guess. But that, when I got to Houston, um, I, I met up with Ted DiBiase in, in the hotel and, uh, he, he said, let's, let's go to the gym. I got a limo all day. We'll, we'll get him to take us over there. So I think we were sitting at the Hyatt Regency spindle top. And this was a big show. Paul's bringing in, stars and combining with WWE stars and uh, uh, my gosh, huge show. And he's bringing in sentimental favorites like me. And I think I might've been the only sentimental favorite on the card. I don't remember, but I'm wrestling maniac Mark Lewin. And uh, I get word that I'm going to go over. And as they tell us, I see Mark's expression and I'm thinking, man, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to talk to him. I don't know what to do. But I do remember this. Rene Goulet coming over to both of us and said, hey, all right, listen, stay in the ring. Don't go outside. Um, leave the cables alone. Don't touch anything. You have whatever we had, six minutes. I mean, gosh, I felt like, well, yeah, look, it's – it's a guy who had been headlining, who was a legit star in this business, and I, I had not, I never reached my potential. But at that time, certainly I was not um, qualified, in my opinion, to, to go over Mark. I should have just changed it on the fly, but nope. Anyway, we, we got to the ring, the bell rings, Mark throws me right outside the ring, and uh, I still can't watch it to this day. I watched it, I think two years ago or last year, somebody brought it up and I said, yeah, I remember that. Let's just move on. Uh, but he threw me outside the ring, straddled me on the barricade, choked me with the cables, everything that Renee had told us not to do. And I got it, came in and we finished the match. So I thanked Mark in the back, uh, but I still didn't know what to say. I didn't see him at the party that night, but, uh, 
events are throwing a party for Paul Bosch, <laughs> big lavish event, and uh, that was that. So that was my first actual match with WWF at that time. Yes, but um, but I was I I wasn't real happy with it. Wasn't real happy about it. Uh, I was just ready to go back to Birmingham and, and continue on. I guess. Now with Vince and Paul Bosch and him throwing a party stuff, was that him basically buying out the territory and retiring Paul Bosch and that would be the end of Paul Bosch? I, I believe that was the idea. I believe that uh, Vince had made a deal and uh, was was going to keep Paul on to do the, the wraparounds for TV and and open up an office uh, with, with Ticketmaster in Houston and sell tickets and uh, continue on at the same location they had an office at, but uh, but for whatever reason, I, I wasn't privy to the comments, and I don't even want to uh, go into it because it, it's been covered other places, and I wouldn't do it justice, and I don't want to say one thing and people say, well, he said this and he said that. But it was supposed to be a farewell for Paul, and uh, as does happen at times in professional wrestling and the entertainment business, um, things get crossed up. And uh, at that time, I think a lot of promoters were were getting crossed up and crossed out, pretty much eliminated by WWE. And uh, uh, Paul was a casualty of that of that uh, time and space, I guess. It was. It, it, it was a different time, a different era, a different attitude for everybody in the business, in my opinion, because I, I, I look around and uh, uh, see what's going on today, not just not just the major company, WWE, but, but I'm looking at just some of the offshoots and some of the, some of the things that have happened in the last 20 years. And uh, it, it's some good, some not so good. But back then, everybody had the same idea that uh, we can't go out and present this any other way than we than the way we've been presenting it since 19-whatever. And I think that might have been – well, obviously, it was the, the, the wrong attitude to take in, in the uh, long run. But if you look at what's going on today, it would be nice to have a place where – Guys could go learn a different style, learn a different area, learn learn different uh, response and reactions, and uh, get some experience that way. But yeah, that was that was supposed to be the end of Paul Bosch, and Vince would now be sending his crew to uh, Houston, and they'd be re- working in different buildings and uh, doing their own thing. So I, I think too at that time Paul had. had been in the business, I believe, 50 years, and uh, that's a long time. And I believe he was ready to enjoy his life, going to Hawaii with his wife, enjoying his house in Sugarland, and uh, kicking back. Though so I, I don't think he was ready necessarily to just completely give up the wrestling business, but I think he was ready to give it up uh, at that time because of what it had become. Yes. The rest of the card is interesting. I'm not going to go over the whole thing, but it's just so interesting. Some of the matches, Bruno San Martino versus Hercules, which is like, wow, Bruno, you know, 87. I know he's still around, but wow, what an interesting kind of just thrown on there. A huge legend, but second match on the card, just thrown out there. Hogan defending the WWF world title against the one-man gang. That's a good one, especially gang, huge in Texas. Then, interesting, Sherry Martell, and Fabulous Moolah, another kind of favorite to throw out there, two guys' favorites, Terry Funk and Chavo Guerrero. And then technically the main event, if you want to say the, ma- the main event goes on last, Mil Mascaris and Tito Santana versus Demolition. So quite an interesting card. And obviously you're one of the, uh, you know, one of the hometown favorites, but you, you, know, you got Mil Mascaris, Terry Funk, a couple good ones on there. Well, there, there was uh, – Paul uh, was, was highly respected in the wrestling business and with, with the boys and the promoters and, and in his history and rightly so. But Vince also wanted to make this a special deal. He flew in Luthez and, and Vern Gagne and some guys that Vince 
uh, I don't want to say was at war with, but was in the process of, of stealing his talent, taking his talent away. So um, he did it very, very, did it up really, really nice. And it was my first experience of uh, seeing how Vince does things. And, and, and one thing you can never say about Vince is he, 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 he certainly, or one thing you can say about Vince, he certainly does uh, do things first class. And this was a first class deal. And um, again, I, I don't want to go into a story about the, the entire, the entire uh, show and, and how it transpired. That's that's uh, that's a, about a two hour podcast himself, and I don't have all the details. I wasn't there, but again, my brother was, and he talks about it on his show. So, um, suffice to say, it was uh, a great mix of of modern day superstars, guys who had been around for a long time, plus you had Hogan was red hot, mm-hmm. uh, Chavo and Terry Funk still meant something in Texas, and uh, uh, my gosh, yeah, it was it was a hell of a card and a hell of a night, and uh, for, for, for some of us, it was a hell of a time. Now, you would end up not really coming back to the WWF basically for another six years, so it's 87, you fast forward to uh, 1993, right? Yes, yes, yes. But let me let me say this too. Uh, there there was a time where I put Madison Square Garden WWE completely out of my head and just said, "Look, I'll, I'll wrestle uh, wherever I can until I can't." And uh, WWE was pretty much off my radar. I wasn't even thinking about it. Didn't even. I'd, I'd come to the conclusion that. Uh, It'll never happen. And I'm one of those guys who never say never. But at this juncture, at this point, I just had, had said, well, I had my chance in 87. It didn't go <laughs> very good. So um, I'm not that big of a guy. I understand. Uh, I'll deal with it down south. Jim Cornette actually called me to do Smoky Mountain Wrestling. So I thought, well, here's something we can uh, really sunk our teeth into because Jim knows his stuff. Jim is a, a tremendous manager, tremendous uh, mind for the business, and so I'll I'll do this until I can't. And uh, yeah, I, I really hadn't been vigilant, if you will, or even looking uh, at a way in anymore. I tried, but it, but I just uh, when you have the door slammed in your face. You know, some, I tried again, yes, but then eventually it got to the point where um, I, I just didn't even feel it. It wasn't even uh, – I was not pursuing it. So in 1993, I was 33 years old, and I had been wrestling now for 13 years. Uh, I started in 1979, so what, yeah, 13, 14 years, whatever it is. And uh, I, I had some some injuries. I, I had a bad neck injury from Jackie Fulton. Just saw one one night in the ring where Stan and I are working with Jackie and Bobby Fulton, the Fantastics. And Jackie came in and out of nowhere just gives a spin, kicks me in the face, and it stunned me so bad. I thought, "What the hell are you doing?" And I grabbed him, but you can't hurt him. He's just a big guy that. No matter how hard you pound on him, he just looks at you and says, "Everything okay?" So uh, you know, I that I'd already had you know a neck quirk, a neck injury, and still to this day that that was the the beginning of it. And um, uh, so I'm going to WWE at that time, uh, not not at 23, but 33. So it is a different it's a different uh, mindset. It was a different uh, deal altogether, but. But it is funny how that all came up. It's it's kind of a uh, a weird circumstance because, as I said, I always, I tell people in, in my seminars and class, you can never say never, and and you can you can never discount anything if you believe you can or believe you can't. You're right either way. That's that's uh, Henry Ford, and it's it's never been truer. Um, we we were. We were scheduled. We did a, a Super Brawl three for WCW in '93, in February '93 too. Bill Watts was in charge in WCW. 
always liked Cornette. He always loved uh, the Midnight Express rock and roll angle in Louisiana. That popped. Yeah, you know, those those four those five guys actually popped uh Louisiana in the eighties when it was a big man's territory. And uh, they came in and they just uh blew it away. They drew and they were making money hand over fist. They were driving a lot of miles, three thousand, four thousand miles a week, but uh Jim always had a great relationship with Bill Watts. And real quick on a side note, if anyone doesn't know about Bill Watts, Cowboy Bill Watts, or seen any of his early matches, he's another guy to study for a big man or for a man who, who can understand and recognize talent. I, I never had the opportunity to get that close to him because, again, my my character flaws, no one else's. But he was the guy who turned me heel. He was the guy who came back to me. Now, I, I'm working the third, second, third match. But I'll never forget this. He came back to me. Uh, couldn't tell you what town it is, but I just never forget what he said. And asked me if I had ever thought about being a heel. And I said, every day. And he said, yes, I see it when you walk to the ring. I'm going to turn you heel. Uh, and he did. And he gave me an opportunity. So as I got older, as I got to know about Bill Watts, uh, he wanted to help all his talent. He wanted all his talent to get it. He wanted to, he wanted guys to succeed. He gave you an opportunity, and it was the same thing that was happening in uh, WCW with Jim Cornette. He, he I think he he might have called Jim, or Jim might have called him, and and uh, suggested an idea to maybe work with Smoky Mountain Wrestling as a developmental territory, as something along those lines. So. Uh, he did, and we, of course, Jim had the Heavenly Bodies and, and the Rock and Roll Express, and we could come over to uh, uh, Atlanta, and we, we invaded Atlanta TV one one afternoon and uh, did the angle and had a, had a match with the Rock and Roll Express in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, a Super Brawl 3. And that was supposed to be the start of getting more matches. We had matches built leading up to this, I had the match, and I think Watts got fired before we when the match actually happened. But uh, so we were back in Smoky Mountain, and all of a sudden, we um, I've been talking back and forth to to Bruce, and my dad had come to uh, uh, visit visit me in Knoxville. He'd usually stay a week, and you know, my dad was one of those guys who he liked to golf, but wrestling wasn't. Uh, I wasn't on his radar until I actually became a wrestler. Now it's like, nah, I've always been into it. Well, no, you hadn't. But anyway, he wanted to come and visit, so he came and visit and came to the show. And so we're going to rib Bruce. Uh, and at this time, Stan is gone. Jimmy Del Rey is now there. And uh, after a show, you know, Jim comes back and says, hey, here's what we're going to do. Get your dad. We're going to cut a promo saying uh, – you know, Mr. Pritchard's here, and, and what do you think about your son? He goes, well, we, uh, you know, we, we, we're very proud, and, you know, we have another son, who, but we don't really talk about him because he works for that phony wrestling company up north. And we filmed, <laughs> it, we, we, we filmed it just for Bruce. And, uh, you know, Jim said some other stuff, and there's some other gimmicks, and we're laughing and joking and all this other stuff on the promo. I sent it to Bruce. And Bruce calls like two days later. And uh, ask if we would like to do a, to have a match with uh, with the Steiners. I believe he said that at first uh, at SummerSlam, based off this promo because Bruce put it on where there were uh, other people around. I think, and they saw it and and they talked. So now uh, we are headed to SummerSlam '93 against the Steiners. But the thing was, we I had I had this sneaking suspicion, and, it, and, it, and it's pretty true. I, I I knew it without anyone telling me uh, what was going on. They were looking at Jim Cornette. They were looking at, at Jim as a mouthpiece for Yokozuna. At that time, they had Mr. Fuji um, walking to the ring with him. Fuji could could cut a promo at one time, but but but. Uh, 
Yokozuna needed someone like Jim Cornette to really stir up uh, the excitement of the and the attitude era that was about to take place. Jim was perfect for it. So we we had flown in, do some TV stuff, and get ready. And the first night in, uh, again, I'm horrible with towns. But the first night in, Jim has a meeting with everybody, and uh, we understand he's he's going to be Yoko's American spokesman too. And plus, he'll manage us for a little bit until, once again, he'll manage us until he does it. And and I understood that. I I was totally cool with that. I got I, I understood where our place was. So we um, we were happy for the opportunity. I know I was happy for the opportunity to go to WWE or WWF at that time, but um, I was smart enough to know at that time that uh, this this might have been our only shot because nobody was really sitting with us saying, hey, here's what we're going to do. We have a program for you because that, that wasn't the case. They didn't have a program for us. Uh, and this was only supposed to be a one-shot deal. Then they talked to Jim, and then it became another shot and another shot, and then we went to Japan. And right before uh, Jimmy and I went to Japan, I believe it was in January, uh, that's when we were offered a uh, contract, full-time contract. But what I forgot to mention, uh, when DiBiase and I went to the gym that day in Houston, we ran into Vince and his crew, and he had just come back from a meeting um, at the uh, Houston wrestling office. The night before, Bruce and I had been, uh, we went out to see some friends, and on the way back, we're we're listening to uh, the wrestling album. And I heard Vince sing Stand Back. So I jokingly tell Bruce, hey, I'm going to tell Vince I heard your your, uh, song last night. I thought it was great. And Bruce says, yeah, tell him he liked that. So I see Vince, and the first thing I do, uh, well, the, Ted says hi first, and Ted says, hey, this is Tom, Bruce's brother. I say, hey, how you doing? I say, Vince, doing great. Heard you, heard you sing Stand Back last night. Thought it was great. He looked at me like I had three heads and then walked away like, hmm, and I couldn't understand it. I thought he'd, be, thought he'd love it. Bruce said so. Anyway, uh, and later on that night, I, I, I heard about uh, the chaos and uh, stuff that was going on. So it, my first impression of my first meeting with Vince didn't go too well. And now we're, we're getting a shot to come in and work with the Steiners in Detroit. This is their hometown. I remember this. And, uh, and that was it. But I was, you know, the Steiners liked Jim Cornette, and they'd done business with him before. Didn't know us from anything. But we went out, and I thought we had a great match. You know, did what we were supposed to do, and uh, everything was good. So that was going to be the end of it. And then all of a sudden, uh, we had Rock and Roll come in, and I had a few more matches, and uh, we got hired right before we went to all Japan. So I'm guessing Vince didn't like you, uh, basically, <laughs> at that point. Well, well, at that point, I think uh, he wasn't sure because I was not. Look, uh, we all go. Well, I went through spurts of of going to the gym, working out, doing what I was supposed to do, and then I go through spurts of doing what I'm not supposed to do. And you can't do that. You, you I understood. I understood that, and I understood it even more when. Uh, uh, the results happened the way they happened. So I, I wasn't doing what I should have done on my part. It wasn't working out, wasn't training, wasn't wasn't invested as I should have been. But after we got hired, Vince was the guy who signed people back then. Vince was the guy who called everybody in and talked to them back then and said, uh, you know, when I first met you, uh, I thought you were a flaming effing asshole. And I thought, hmm, well, that's great. And he says, but now it looks like you've changed and – Everything's good, and we'll offer you this. This was before guaranteed contracts. We're, we're offering you an opportunity, and and that's all you can really ask for is an opportunity. So, uh, yeah, Vince didn't really – I didn't make a great impression on him the first time. That's obvious. Not so sure I made a great impression on him the second or third or fourth or any other time, but he did let me train him, or he did have me train him, so it must have meant something, huh? 
Yeah, very, yeah. very true. Yeah, and go yeah. back a couple episodes, yeah, we talk all about that training. Very, very that is true. true. Now, that is great. I mean, you thought you were an asshole. But Bruce never, like, got any intel, like, hey, you know, uh, that that uh, that line about stand back, it didn't go over as well. He never gave no. you any intel on that? No, no, no. And, and and there again, you have to understand, especially you, the, a lot of people think, well, if you have family or you have a friend in in a high high position, that oh man, you're in. That that doesn't always work that way. And I never, I really, honest to God, never wanted to put Bruce in any position uh, to show favoritism, nepotism, give any impression like that. And I never. <sighs> Never asked. Uh, never tried to rock the boat, and that's that's on my that's my fault. I should have rocked the boat because some of the stuff we did was really stupid and really uncalled for. I thought, but that was up to me to say something, and I didn't. So um, that's what I tell people these days: that listen, here's what you must do if you want to succeed. Don't. God, I hate to say this, but don't do as I did. Do as I say. Because the things I did, this is what happened, and this is how I learned. And then once I was able to get in those meetings and be in the, the writers' uh, and producers' meetings and listen to how it works, I mean, I have I knew how it worked, but then this is how how it really works and how the people in power uh, make the decisions. This is how they make their decisions um, by your attitude and your drive, your perseverance, and how bad do you want it? They're not going to come to you and say, boy, we sure want to give you a whole bunch of money and make you a big star. You have to prove that you deserve a whole lot of money and deserve to be a big star. It takes a lot of hard work. And uh, while we worked hard, I don't believe we or I did everything possible to make it even better. Now, you mentioned Steiner Brothers, SummerSlam 93, Detroit, Michigan. Great show overall. That is a great match. One of the best matches of the night, definitely. You have you said you, you thought it was a great match. Do you have, like, fond memories of working the Steiners? Because I just, even going back very recently and watching it, just love that match. I mean, just the chemistry is there. You guys are awesome. They're awesome. Just like a kind of a perfect combination. Well, yeah. Again, I didn't really know them, and, and – um... Uh, I, I had heard about Rick and Scott both could be moody, and I thought, well, of course. Of course you can be moody. We all can be moody. But I, I thought um, they they had come to Smoky Mountain Wrestling, had some spots with us too, uh, had some matches with their dog at ringside, Rick's dog. And um, so and we worked a little loop with them uh, in, in, in Smoky Mountain. So they were always business uh never tried to prove how tough they were how tough they were with us um so i appreciated that and uh they wanted to have good matches too so and they trusted jim they they loved the midnight express so i think and once they got in the ring with us and found out that we we were uh wanting to work and wanting to to make the match look great, they they worked with us, and and it was it really was. It, I, I never I don't think we ever had a bad match with them. Rick could be. I, I remember in Boston. I do remember where this was because it was a. Um, for some reason, the town sticks in my head. But Jimmy wanted to wanted to play games with Rick sometimes, and and just just play as as boys will do. Oh, here I go. I'm going to go behind you, take you down. Well, yeah, sometimes uh, <laughs> sometimes that doesn't go as planned, and Rick would always grab Jimmy by the short hairs on his head and lead him around the dressing room sometimes when he'd try that stuff. But 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 it was all in fun, and they, they liked to play those games. You know, Jimmy was afraid of the dog, and Rick knew it, so sometimes Rick would egg the dog on to, to go after Jimmy and, and Chase and stuff like that. So... Um, but they, they look, those guys were pros and they knew if they just went out and tried to be tough guys and eat us up, it's, it's going to suck for everybody. It's going to suck for the match. It's not going to give them any good press. And, and I don't think that, uh, 
I don't think that entered their mind. I think they they were. I believe they knew uh, that we knew what we were doing too, and just let's go out and have a great match and uh, show them what we can do. Now you mentioned it's supposed to be a one and done. You guys obviously end up returning. You're on Monday Night Raw. You're on Superstar. You're on Wrestling Challenge. But fast forwarding to another big pay per view, back when they didn't have twelve a year or even more than that. Basically, in 1993, they were moved up to five a year, adding in the King of the Ring, but Survivor Series would be next up on the plate, and you guys would win a Smoky Mountain tag team title match against Rock and Roll Express, and I love this match. I think it's a great match, but I remember we did an interview with uh, Jim Cornette a while back, and we kind of went into this match specifically, because we were talking about, wow, you know, not many teams can wrestle in WCW and WWF in the same year, and but also Smoky Mountain, which was huge at that point. So it's one of those things, and he's like, yeah, but they didn't like it too much. And we were, and we were so confused. Like, how the hell did they not like it? I thought that was such a great match. But what, you know, what were your kind of thoughts on Survivor Series 1993 against the Rock and Roll Express? Yeah, Boston hated it. They, they have this uh, view I guess it, it really was. It was one of my not not my very first, but one of my first uh, encounters with a north a northern fan base that knew we were two southern tag teams coming in with our southern tag team spots, and mm. we had we had not earned their respect or or, or anything yet. And here we were, uh, we had it, man. We were, you know, Bruce likes, likes to say maybe it was the size of the ring. Could be, but I doubt it. I just think it was, we were four guys from a foreign land and, and you had your Boston fans who were going to let them know, let us know that we had not earned anything yet. We, and they didn't care. They didn't care what we had done anywhere else they were going to let us know they didn't like that match just because it could, they, and even if they did like it, they weren't going to say it, I guess. That's kind of what, the way I felt. Because I know we went out, and I know Ricky and Robert were, were my God, over, over at that time uh, with the NWA, of course. And then coming in to one of the hottest WWE towns, it's, it's just, I, I just felt that it wasn't, it wasn't the right vibe. It wasn't the right atmosphere. It kind of felt like an outside match coming in. And here's what we got, guys. You're not buying this. Well, how about this? Oh, you're not buying this either, huh? Well, all right, let's finish this up real quick. But you're right. I mean, it, technically, it was. But but there again, that's a perfect example of understanding um, the dun, the dynamics of your crowd, the dynamics of uh, where you're at, and and trying to do what you can do. Sometimes there's nothing you can do, and come back, watch it, and see what happens. See what you can do different. See if there's anything else. And sometimes, uh, what works in Boston uh, or what works in Tennessee won't work in Boston. Won't work, you know, past the Mason-Dixon line, I guess. Um, it's the entertainment business and it's professional wrestling. So there's nothing etched in stone to say this is the only way to do it. Uh, but at the same time, that's the difference between being over, getting over, and learning. I don't know if you can necessarily learn it or if it just has, you have to have it and, and understand how to bring it out. Because I, I see, in my opinion, I've seen a lot of greats who just, who always had it just needed to be put either on a different plane, on a different uh, level, uh, give them an opportunity, and uh, give them a match that will increase their confidence with someone who understands that's their job for this night is to make this this person. Another good example is Dave Batista. Great potential, but man, what happened to him early on in his career with WWE um, it, it wasn't anywhere near uh, being tapped, looked at, or used. They they just they were looking a different direction, and it was Dave, I believe, who who finally keyed in on it and and understood that uh, when uh, I think Hunter came to him and and they had their talk and and developed their relationship and uh, Dave learned 
But at that time, tag teams, or at least our tag team, was not a priority. So that was just, yeah, it was just one of those things that you live and learn, and uh, hopefully you you can pass down some advice on what to do and what not to do from stuff like that. Did Vince and Pat Patterson or anybody backstage, did they say anything about like not liking the match or not feeling it? No, no, they didn't have to. Uh, it was evident. I mean, you can watch it back and watch people just sitting on their hands or, mm. you know, betting on dice game in the back or whatever. You know, it just, it was, it was, yeah, yeah. It wasn't a bad match, but we can use all the excuses in the world. Um, the ring was too big. Uh, the spots were too much. Uh, there weren't enough spots. There were too many. Uh, you know, Circle K has a special on coffee at that time, and everybody had to leave. You know, that, there, you know all the excuses in the world, but uh, it doesn't matter. You know, you're you're appealing to your fan base, and if that's if they want the Lex Express, they're going to get the Lex Express. If they don't want the Lex Express, they ain't going to get it. So they got it just a couple, couple more times after that, and I think old Lex Express ran out of gas. <laughs> yep, I got you. Yeah. As far as far as kind of that match in particular, obviously you would say Super Bowl was the the better of the two. Uh, yeah, well, yes, because it was in Asheville, North Carolina. It was a it was a Southern crowd. It was a conditioned NWA crowd or WCW, I guess. Right. Yep. Now, as far as Staying in the WWF Survivor Series comes and goes. Obviously, you guys are still there. You said when January comes around, they offer you guys a contract. So they must like the Heavenly Bodies, though, if they want to keep you guys around and give you a contract, right? Yeah, I think by that time they were looking for uh, an opportunity. Oh, that was it. They were looking for an opportunity. And I believe they were going to, they wanted to use Smoky Mountain Wrestling as a developmental system. That was that, the, the deal back then, too. Uh, and then I, I don't, I, I remember it was Evansville. Sometimes I do remember, obviously, I remember it was, uh, or Louisville, Louisville, I think they took us in a room and just said, Hey, uh, gosh, you could probably tell me better when we went back to Smoky Mountain, but they said, uh, yeah, Jim really, really needs you guys at Smoky Mountain, uh, to come back and help him. I thought, yeah, right. I'm sure he does. He's got, uh, He's got that pretty well sewn up. But we went back, and, um, you know, they, they gave us an opportunity. And, and once again, you know, we're working with uh, Owen and Lex, uh, or Owen and Davy Boy, um, the Samoan head trickers. Head trickers, thank you. Uh, and, and we're working with some teams, but they don't really, they're not really focusing in on tag teams at that time, too. And, and here's here's here was an explanation that I heard. You know, you got four guys in a match, and chances are, out of those four guys, maybe one like like let's say you know Brett started out in the Hart uh, Foundation, but Brett shined brighter than than Jim, um, or 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 whatever it was. Brett kind of branched off into a singles, and they they broke up the team. Jim did just great, but. Um, and I think they didn't want to pay for, you know, four guys on the card if they didn't have to, or unless, especially if it was, you know, guys like uh, Jimmy and me and against whoever. Uh, it, it was it was just like a match on the card. It was not featured. So I think I think they kind of figured that out soon enough. And would it be kind of you guys? Not getting a double paycheck, so to speak, but you're getting Smoky Mountain like you're going for there, and then you're going to WBF. You're kind of doing both. Well, yeah, but uh, no, we were we were getting at that time WWE was paying us. Uh, if we came back and, and did a show for Jim, he would pay us. But at that time, especially under contract, or maybe WWE paid us. Come to think of it, because we were under contract, so. We would go back, and I believe they would bonus us. Um, but look, it, it wasn't. I got to tell you, it, it it wasn't as bad as I may be making it sound because it was it was okay, it was good, it was business was was down. Uh, but at the same time, 
you were working with some good guys and it was it was WWF back then. So we we got a lot of experience and and, and I certainly learned some stuff and uh, Jimmy and I were two different people, Jimmy Del Rey and I were just two different people. In the ring, we we could make it work. Uh, but once we, we got out of the ring and, and after the show, he went his way and went mine. And if you're going to work as a tag team, you really have to work as a tag team in and out of the ring. That's uh, it's something I've seen with the Freebirds. It's something I've seen with uh, the Hart Foundation. Uh, any any of the really good tag teams, any of the really great tag teams, let me take that back, the Road Warriors, you know, they, they were brothers in and out of the ring. Jimmy and I, and again, I'll take the heat for that. I'll take the blame for that and all the responsibility because I just was at a point where he wanted to do his thing and I wanted to do my thing, and they didn't really mesh. So we were in this position. We were in a business relationship. And even when we tried to go out and forge this bond and, and camaraderie, um, well, I just, I just, uh, whatever happened, happened. And I'm not quite sure what that was, but I was more into, uh, I, I wanted to keep a low profile and everywhere I went with Jimmy, it was, he was the uh, life of the party and you need that. You, you certainly need that, but I was in no, um, mood to go in and all of a sudden have all eyes on us. I wanted to kind of scope the place out and and uh, I wanted to see what was there. And I, I wanted to have a good time my way. And my way wasn't always a lot of fun, but it was fun to me. I got you. That's definitely understandable. And some teams, right, are different on the screen and off screen. And I definitely want to do a, a maybe a whole episode on Jimmy Del Rey or maybe just focus in on, on the Heavenly Bodies. But kind of going back to WBF, I just think it's interesting. Can work Smoky Mountain, can do 60-minute Iron Man tag matches against, you know, Rock and Roll Express or Robert Gibson and Tracy Smothers or, you know, Gibson and Tim Horner. How about, whoever, whoever how about Lance Storm? How about Lance Storm and Chris Jericho? I mean, my gosh, well, yeah, we yeah. had them at a young time. Yep. That, that's actually a few months later at where I'm about to hit, and I was about to hit March of 94. So it's basically, you know, you're having – a lot of Smoky Mountain tag matches, and, and you guys are really uh, still the tag team champions of Smoky Mountain at this point, but you make an appearance at WrestleMania 10, March 20th, 1994. I was about, I'd say, 18 rows back maybe for that show, and I have a couple great pictures of uh, the Heavenly Bodies that night, but you guys were on the, the pre-show, and you know you mentioned before about making it back to MSG, and you kind of gave up on that, so you make it to MSG, really, you know, as far as WrestleMania is concerned. 10 years in the making, WrestleMania 10, Bushwhackers, but is it still the same thing that it's the dark match? Uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it, it would have been really nice to be on WrestleMania, but we were there, uh, we were on the card. And, and again, you have to have, I have, it's up to me to have that drive. But it was very, very cool to finally walk in Madison Square Garden and actually perform. It, my gosh, the most famous arena in the world. Um, who wouldn't want to do that? And we did. So yeah, it was it was kind of cool. And everything I say when when I talk about like, well, <laughs> we 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 didn't work as a team outside and everything else. Not to say that everything was all bad because it really really wasn't. And that was kind of cool. I known the Bushwhackers for a long time. And uh, so we knew what kind of match it was going to be. Um, but, yeah, it was it was a very exciting work in Madison Square Garden. Not, not just the first time, but every time, because if the, if the walls could talk, and you know, it, it's just, it, it looks like a big arena. That's it. It's not, it's not new. It's old. It's creaky. It, it, it has its quirks, but that's what makes it so great. It is old and creaky and has its quirks and ghosts and everything else that go along with it. Um, so yeah, when I, I, I walked through the halls, I walked up and down, walked in every dressing room I could just to see the room, just to see the vibe and, and the pictures on the wall backstage is really, really cool. Pretty awesome to just be on that show. 
such kind of a, a great WrestleMania to me, obviously being there live, but kind of just underrated and great. And if you think about it, you guys were able to be in a dark match, but there were matches that got cut out of that show for length. Yes. So, I mean, it is good to be able to say, hey, you know, at least we we made it. We actually were able to wrestle. Some matches didn't make it. Yeah, yeah, we, we, were, we were well aware of that, too. Hmm. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. Time constraints, right? I mean, that just happens where things go long or whatever. I think it was because it was a. I think it was an eight man or six man with Tatanka. Jeff Jarrett was in it, and mm-hmm. yeah, uh, bunch of guys. Yeah, yeah, bunch of guys. They would do it the night after and rub. I mean, that's not the same. No, 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 not near the same. <laughs> now, as far as kind of the heavenly bodies, obviously, I mean, the Survivor Series '94. Uh, you'll be in Rumble '95. I mean, there's a bunch of other kind of different highlights, but. Working with some of those teams you did, and I feel like a lot of people say, oh, that tag division wasn't that great, but the Smoking Guns were a good team. Well done, which I'm sure a lot of people aren't aware of. They were a good underrated team. Bob Holly and 123 Kid, uh, Ally Powers, who you mentioned before, Bulldog and Luger. I mean, there was, they still had, I mean, they had some pretty decent teams. Men on a Mission, maybe not great, but, you know, good for what they were. I mean, it's not a really that bad of a tag division looking back. No, it really wasn't. Uh I just don't believe that tag teams were featured or highlighted uh, back then it went, when we got there. It might have been on the card, but certainly not not a not a highlight or a feature um, unless it was, uh, I think it was Davey Boy and Owen, right? Or was it Luger? Davey Boy uh, and Luger. Davey Boy and Luger at, at that point, yep. Yes, 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 at that point. You know, they would be featured because they were – you know, single stars and now a team, now a team. But I, I think it was just, um, once again, the fact that they had their stars that they wanted to feature. And, and there were no really, there were no real hot tag teams. The smoking guns were just starting and Billy and, and Bart, uh, were still getting their feet wet too. Good guys. And they knew how to work, and they had uh, they had all the tools, obviously. So yeah, they had some really really good teams, um, but it just didn't translate when they made the cards out. And they said, "Nope, we'll put this team together and won't put a whole lot of thought into it." I guess. And that's once again, that really is up to you. If if you're in a match that means nothing, well, make it mean something. And have the balls to do that. Have the balls to go out there and and have the uh, skills to go out there and change it and do it. I always thought that the Heavenly Bodies did that. They always, you know, made me like whatever match they were in. It's like, wow, these guys, I mean, just awesome as far as teamwork and chemistry. Because you know what they say about, like, the late 90s Bulls, Rodman and Jordan and Pippen. Those guys didn't really particularly like each other. But when they had to play on the court together, they were awesome and possibly the greatest team of all time. I mean, that, that's kind of the same kind of vibe I'm getting from the, the Heavenly Bodies. Maybe they didn't like each other, but when they have to get in the ring together, they're awesome and the chemistry is great. Right. And I, I agree 100%. It's not that we necessarily didn't like each other. It's just that we had different uh, after work activities that didn't mm. always didn't always mesh, and and that was everybody in that era. I think you know we were we were um, not concentrating on the important things, and I couldn't uh, <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't find a way uh, that would suit me or suit Jimmy. That that we could uh, get together and concentrate on that. I didn't try try real hard either. I just knew that when we got there, we knew what we were going to do. We we had our teamwork down. And in the ring, I have no no complaints uh, about Jimmy because he was a hell of a worker and 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 he was a good guy. He had a great heart. Uh, it's just like I said. Sometimes after we were done, I didn't want to go out. And necessarily um, walk in and say, "Hey, here we are, guys! My God, let's get all the attention on us." I wanted to come in, and I just—I I could be very unsociable, but—and that was my deal. Jimmy was was just the opposite. So, um, yeah, we we wouldn't socialize, but I don't think there was a dislike. There was certainly respect there, because. Uh, 
he, he did some great stuff. But the the other thing was he, you know, uh, he liked uh, potatoes. I like potatoes, I guess. Mm. You know? Yep, absolutely. Now, as far as the heavenly bodies, and definitely in, in later episodes, we'll definitely get even further into them. But really, in June of 95, it's kind of like the last time we'll see the heavenly bodies together in the WWF and, and losing and a bunch of matches in a row to Techno Team 2000 of all yeah. people. But uh, which is which yeah. is interesting. But it's like, wow, they're gone and they're losing to these guys on the way out. No offense to Techno Team 2000, but, right. you know, that's not really uh, heavenly bodies worthy of kind of losing on the way out. You know what I mean? It's like pushing the wrong well, team, I'll just say. Well, well, once again, um, that was up to us to say something. Not if, if we didn't like it, and uh, but we knew we were going to a Smoky Mountain, and we knew they weren't mm. going to do anything with us. We we just kind of had this uh, attitude that, all right, uh, we'll do what you want. And we did. We, that that's on us. And um, I think we talked about this before. I should have asked more questions. I should have stood up more, and I should have said, uh, "I don't think this is the right thing to do." Here's what I think we should do. And I should have had the conviction, but I didn't. And those the Techno Team 2000 uh, with Eric Watts. Eric had potential, and so did Chad. It, it, sometimes you get stuck with those kind of gimmicks and you're waiting for someone to give you direction and someone's waiting for you to give them direction on how you feel about this gimmick or uh, other, or, or it's going to happen the way it happens. And with us, once again, you know, Cornette was already with Yoko. Jimmy, I think was, was uh, getting ready to move up to, uh, Connecticut not too long, and, and Smoky Mountain was on shaky legs. So we were uh, we were working there, not really sure um, about a lot of things. And uh, to make waves would have would have just made it, I think, shorter lived. I could, I could be wrong, but we don't. We'll never know because that's the way it went down. But you're right. We kind of. Would say would would see the card, but again, as a cohesive team, we should have got together and said, "Hey, let's make a plan. Let's go talk to Vince." But if we did, we would have had to make sure that we had a plan and that we would have someone to work with. And I don't really know that we had a team to work with back then, because uh, I think everybody kind of knew the uh, the situation. Jimmy was Jimmy, and I kind of did my own thing. So, once again, if I could go back and do it over again, boy, would I. I'd love to. Great team. Obviously, you would end up kind of staying on with WWF. Jimmy Del Rey kind of went his own way. Ended up eventually in WCW as uh, Jimmy Graffiti, which is kind of a forgotten run, I feel, feel like. But I think that's a great stopping point for kind of this week as far as the Heavenly Bodies and WWF and you, because I feel like there's a whole another long chapter in the storied history of the body donnas of Skip and Zip. Oh, well, let me just say this uh, real quick, because I know that is a stopping point with the Heavenly Bodies, but Skip and Zip was horrendous. Terrible, <laughs> terrible idea, terrible team. I loved uh, Chris Cantito. And, oh, my gosh, and that was one of those things that, again, uh, if, I could, if I could go back in time and change, I would, but I can't. And, yeah, the, heavenly, the, the body Donna's was like, if there was ever a dark point in my career and my life, there's, the, uh, there's a starting point right there. Well, no, no, it's not a starting point, but it's certainly uh, along that trip. So, yes, that'll be, yeah, so, so, so that'll, that'll be, be no, no, that, that, that'll be, uh, huh. I was going to say <laughs> that'll be one of those things where I'll really be, uh, uh, thinking hard about now, wait a minute, why am I reliving this horrible uh, tragedy here? Yeah. But uh, anyway, ornery, no. you're going to be ornery about that. No, I wouldn't be ornery. I'll be factual. Now, as far as 
JPWA. What is going on lately with JPWA? I mean, you always hear great stuff. You're always seeing stuff going around. Um, Cornette is promoting it constantly and stuff like that. So what is going on with JPWA? We're Listen, we're gearing up and we're training. We have guys uh, who are working every weekend and, and getting some great experience. Uh, we're training every week. We, we have Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. Uh, so we, we have a pretty good schedule going on. The guys are coming in. They're working hard, getting opportunities, and we're looking for more opportunities this year. Uh, we already have some things in the works, some surprises coming up. And it's, it's going to be a really, really cool year. I appreciate everybody talking about everybody who said something about JPWA because I truly believe if you're going to go to wrestling school, you must love this. You must have a passion for it. Not everybody teaches the same. Not everybody knows the same. Nobody knows everything. But uh, when we get in the ring, we, we not only do bumps, but we talk about things, too. We talk about why we do what we do. And uh, if there's a certain match or a certain uh, talent that I feel uh, fits somebody, we'll look it up. I'll I'll Google it. We'll YouTube it. We'll WWE network it. We'll look it up. We'll find out um, who they are, how it relates to them. And it's got to come back full circle. The, the wrestling business has gone so far one way, the pendulum's got to swing eventually back to the other way. How soon that'll be, don't know. But I do know this, and I say this all the time, and I mean it, I mean it with all my heart. The basics and fundamentals never go out of style. So uh, that's something I preach on a daily basis, and when when our guys go somewhere, they they always bring suggestions. They always have ideas. Even if they don't get used, at least they have something to bring to to bring to the show, to bring to the match. And and that's uh, that's what I'm so proud of these guys for doing is because they're they're actually doing research. They're actually uh, studying. Uh, matches. They're actually studying guys from the past, so they can not so they can do their exact same style. No, but there is body language. I talked about Bill Watts earlier. He was a big man, but the way he moved, everything he did meant something. When he pulled his fist back, you knew he was threatening you. His facials, body language, it meant something. It looked the part. And I'm not saying work just like that, but get that same feel, get that same vibe, get that attitude, bring it with you, find it, because that's what it is. And that's what we're doing at JPWA, uh, getting our guys ready and having fun doing it. Love it. And of course, Pro Wrestling Tees has a, a JPWA store. Pick up a JPWA shirt over there. Also, check out their Patreon page. A lot of stuff, training tips, some great videos over there. And of course, the website, jpwrestlingacademy.com. You can follow Dr. Tom on Twitter at Dr. Tom Pritchard. You can follow me at Two Man Power Trip. Check out our website, tmptempire.com. And Dr. Tom, what do you got going on, personal appearance wise? Real quick, uh, February 7th, the Tracy Smothers uh, uh, benefit show is coming up in uh, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. We have information on our website. We have information on the uh, Jacob Pritchard Wrestling Academy Facebook. Also, KFW uh, on their Facebook, uh, Kenfolk Wrestling. I'm going to be managing uh, Mick Drake, Devin Driscoll, and Shane Williams, or Saint Shane Andrews, excuse me, against Shane Williams, King Shane Williams, uh, Ricky Morton, uh, and Kenzie Page Henry with Tracy Smothers in their corner. So uh, for the immediate future, February 7th in uh, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, great cause, uh, Tracy Smothers benefit show. Check it out, KFW. And um, that's about it for right now. Uh, I don't want to plug too much. We have some some really cool stuff that we talked about last week, this summer, and uh, trust me, this summer will be here before you know it. 
it's it's coming up pretty fast. Even though we're we're still in January, it's it's going to get here before you know it. And uh, we've been talking about some surprises and some uh, some pretty cool stuff happening. I just can't I can't reveal too much right now. Good stuff as always. I love it. And you know, we we're talking about Jim Cornette and how much he loves you. He's been promoting you. Got a uh, message from one. Vince Russo that wanted to say hello to you and, and pass on his love to you. So you're loved by Cornette. You're loved by Russo. Everyone loves Dr. Tom. How do you feel about that? <laughs> oh, well, let's, let, I tell you what, as soon as you say that, we're going to get some, uh, some derogatory remarks and I'm okay with that too. No, I, I really do. I appreciate all the, all the uh, tweets. I appreciate all the comments. I appreciate uh, all the love because as I said, sometimes you you go along in the business and you don't know where you stand because you're you're on the outside looking in, and you, I, you we all um, I think have this uh, insecurity button that we that we just constantly push uh, because you want to be there and you, you see you see a great match, you see a great house, and you just you, you you watch this and you're saying to yourself, man, I just wish I could do it one more time. So. Um, I, I do appreciate it. I, I really do. You know, I had a great talk when Seamus came in a couple months ago real quick and, and he was telling me these things. He's looking at me and I just, I don't know what to say when someone says I, I couldn't have done it without you. And, and I, I say, thank you. But he goes, no, no, no. I mean, it. I'm going, I know you do. I really do know you mean that. And I appreciate that with all my heart. I just don't know what to say to that except thank you. And I appreciate it. And I hope I can do more for others. And I heard a great line uh, just the other night. It, you know, you don't want to teach somebody so they can be, so they can do what you can do. You want to teach them something to be better than you and and go out and be more successful. And that's, I think, that's the key for any coach or for anybody who teaches and, um, and wants people to do well. They want, I, I believe, you want your your guys, your students, to do even better than you and more successful. Awesome stuff, as always, from Dr. Tom. Another great episode in the books of Taking You to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.